Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au If you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation and our world. Uh, It wasn't that long ago uh, when I found myself in my office in Toowoomba and I just started in a new role as senior pastor of the church up there. And I was pretty fond of myself, pretty fond of my achievements, but I thought I'll do, I'll do the right thing here. And I was in the office by myself, all the team had gone home, it was like 4.30, quarter to five, you know, people who work for churches like to knock off early. And uh, so, I, so I'm sitting there and uh, I just start feeling overwhelmed with a sense of God's power. And I'm like, man, God, this, this is such an awesome calling that God has put on my life and I, and I really want to take it seriously. I really want to embrace this. And I'm, so I'm sitting on my chair and I'm like overcome with this. I fall to my knees in my office and uh, I'm on my knees just praying, God, fill me, use me in this role, use me in this church, use me in this city. What a fantastic opportunity. Thank you for choosing me. It wasn't enough for it to be, be on my knees. I fell flat on my face. I'm praying, God, use me, use me, fill me, all this sort of stuff. And about seven minutes later, I got up off the floor and I walked out to my car like I was 10 foot tall. And I'm making my way out to my vehicle that was parked in the car park, got in there, still feeling amazing. Got behind the wheel of my car, drove about 500 metres down the road, and the van in front of me slowed down to about 12 kilometres an hour. And with that prayer beating in my heart, my road rage kicked in. <laughs> what the heck are you doing? Why are you slowing down? I need to get home. What do what you... And I, when, I, when I get angry in my car, I start speaking to myself or speaking to the, whoever's listening in my car. So I'm getting, I'm getting really cranky. My wife can testify to my road rage. What on earth are you doing? And I soon discover why. As I, as I got closer to, what, to the thing he was slowing down for, I see these black Zarafa's spoons, like millions of them, spread out all across the road that we were meant to be driving on. And then I, as I got closer and closer, I saw a Zarafa's van with a very embarrassed looking guy with an empty box that obviously had contained these Zarafa's spoons. I don't know how it happens, just spread out all across the road, looking very embarrassed, looking very sheepish, looking very frustrated himself. So again, as, as, I, rem- as I thought about the prayer I just prayed, that prayer just, just that was so powerful in my life, I started abusing the van driver. It's his problem. Just keep driving. Drive over the stupid spoons. If he's been dumb enough to not secure, just keep driving. Drive. Very up his tail, you know, road rage going on. And as we, as we got past the incident that had happened, pulled around the corner, I felt this, I, I heard this voice in my head from God. I'm sure it was him who said, turn around, go back and help him. No way. It's his problem. I'm not going to go back. That's stupid. Kept driving along about getting another 500 metres down the road again. It's not too late to go back. It's not too late to go back. Nah, I, I, it's too, too frustrated. I get home. I walk into my front door. As soon as I walk across the threshold of my door, that weight of guilt just falls over me. I remember the prayer I prayed and my performance in the car just now. And these two things just do not work together. And I felt another, another word from God fall into my mind if you pray prayers of desperation but have not love, dot, dot, dot. And as if to uh, torment me even further as I left, I must have been going home to pick something up and as I drove out of my street about five minutes later, uh, this Zarafa's van drives past me just to, just to rub in and embed this memory in my head. That's not a good story to open up with when you're preaching in another campus but it's the honest truth. I'm not sure uh, if, you've, if you heard this week, it's one of those, uh, unless you're living under a rock type of headlines, 
there were seven rugby league players who refused to do a certain thing and, uh, and so made all the headlines of these guys who refused to wear the rainbow-coloured jerseys uh, for the Manly Seagulls. I'm an AFL man, but even uh, with my very small interest in rugby league, was still overcome with all the headlines uh, that, the, that, this, that this drew. And I was watching uh, the news one morning, a uh, major news channel, and as they do on these major news channels, they love to pit one view off against the other. They love to have one person on the side of, of, of for and one person on the side of against. And as they talk to each other, the, the, the journalist hosting the show likes to feed the fuel, right? Likes to, likes to fan the flame so the argument gets stronger and stronger. And uh, there, was, there was this lady who was speaking uh, in, from the position of these seven players should be tarred and feathered. How outrageous that they would do this. They're being so exclusive. They're being, and, and this was the thing that really struck me, this lady used the label to describe them of hatred and bigotry. Hatred and bigotry to describe the attitude of these players. And it wasn't just what she said, but how she said it. I mean, the irony was she said it with some venom herself. She said it with what you could say hatred to describe these other players and what they'd done. Now, I am not interested at all today in weighing into that argument, only to say that what struck me, and as I saw more and more reports on this story through the week, what struck me was that these, these players, these seven players, have a faith that, is, that aligns more or less with ours, the reason we're here today that many reminded of, remind us of before. The reason we're in the room today, these seven players have a faith that aligns more or less with ours. And this faith is meant to be expressed in love and yet was labelled by someone outside of the faith with hatred and bigotry. I found that really interesting. Truth be told, I found it really concerning as we live out this faith that we have in our hearts, this faith that we are trying to live out in the way that we uh, engage with the people of the world, that we would be labelled as having in our heart of hearts hatred and bigotry. It's a reality that we're living in a time of significant opposition. As we express our faith, as we live it out, there is opposition that is coming back the other way that's pretty, pretty intense at times, pretty vehement. And with the pressure that we now face from journalists and influencers, but more than that, from the people who we rub shoulders with uh, through our week in various contexts, the words of Jesus must be the loudest in our ears, the words that he said that described the way that we live, that is that we would be known by our love. He said it this way in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The way that we live out our faith, particularly in relationship to one another, as we love one another, Jesus said this would be the marker that you are my disciples. We are living in a time of significant opposition, but that's only half the story. Because for every headline, like the one with the manly, uh, manly players who wouldn't wear the jersey, there are a million Zarafa spoons on the side of the road. We're also living in an incredible time of opportunity. And it seems like whenever, whenever a move of God happens throughout history, you get this dual thing going on the two sides of the coin. When opposition intensifies, opportunity, more opportunities than we've ever known are created. And I reckon that's a good description of the times we are beginning to move into 
a time of opportunity, but also a time of opposition. And how we respond as the church is going to be really significant. And into these times, into this season of history, the letter we have been reading together, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, is really significant. And particularly when we look at it from the angle of identity, because that's the other thing that's at stake here. As opposition comes, we feel a pressure to conform to what the world is saying, to let them speak to our identity, who we are and how we're going to behave in response to what's going on. And so if we want to take a hold of the opportunity and not be put down by the opposition, we need to remember who we are. I need to remember who I am in the eyes of a loving, holy God who has done everything that he's done for me when the world is screaming, no, be this, do this, you are this. I need to hold even firmer on to who God says I am. We started off in week one by considering the fact that for each of us who are in Christ, we are chosen. Rather than conforming again to this identity that we choose for ourselves and we discover it internally and then we live it out and damn anyone who opposes us. No, God, external to us, the, the, the God who created the heavens and the earth and sustains it, uh, however all that works, he, that very God, says to you as an individual, I choose you. I am chosen. In the second week, we looked at this reality that we are saved. We are saved. We, we, are, we, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. We were dead. We, we had no interest in God. We were outside of, of life in him and spiritually, because of what Jesus has done, we have been made alive with Christ. I love preaching this last week at Redlands with the, remembering the reality that not only have we been raised up to citizenship in heaven, like we're, we're just a citizen who has, has sort of one little part to play in the kingdom of heaven, but that passage last week said we've been enthroned with Jesus. There's a throne for you in heaven because you are seated with him at the right hand of the Father. It's ridiculous. We who were dead, completely disinterested in God, that's what's happened to us. We are enthroned in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. And today, we come into this reality, and again, so important in this season of opportunity and opposition, that we remember and know, I am, we are loved. We are loved in this, see, this, this time as well, part of the opposition that's coming against us is this thing, I'm sure you're all familiar with this term of cancel culture, where if you behave a certain way or if you define yourself a certain way or if you express a view that doesn't align with the, the, the trend of society, you, love and, and affection and relationship is withdrawn. God isn't like that. God never withdraws his love from you. No matter what you do, no matter what, what, uh, how outside the bounds you go of his way of living, he will never withdraw his love from you. God isn't moody. God doesn't practice council culture. I love this quote from Brennan Manning describing God's love. His love is never, never, never based on our performance, never conditioned by our moods of elation or depression. The furious love of God knows no shadow of alteration or change. It is reliable and always tender. God's love doesn't move with his moods and he will never withdraw his love from you. And so we land in this passage in our series, a prayer from Paul for the Ephesian church. 
And the way that it's written, it's written down as if it was recorded when Paul was actually praying it. So he's like, he, he's, he's dictating this letter to someone who's writing the letter down and he just starts to pray. Because he, he starts to describe his movements and the, the first, first thing he says, for this reason I kneel. So it's like he's, he's expressing it to the guy who's writing it down or girl who's writing it down. And this is the picture we get, just a window into the heart of Paul for this church at Ephesus. And what I would love to do as we read this letter is not, is not read it all at once, but work through it verse by verse before at the end, reading it as a prayer for Gateway Ormo. So verse 14, Ephesians chapter 3, if you've got your, uh, your Bible in your hand in some version or another. Ephesians 3, 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father. And if you see something like for this reason or therefore or whatever, it's important to understand the context. What we've done from last week to this week is jumped over a bunch of verses uh, to, to, to get through it to, as this series is outlined. But we've missed, we've missed a whole chunk of scripture there that Paul is referring to when he says for this reason. So to understand what's motivating this prayer, we need to ask, well, for what reason? Well, Paul has just described his Jesus-inspired vision of the church. He's just described the mystery of the gospel. Now, when someone talks about a mystery, the idea of a mystery is to build it up to be something incredible, but I think we're so conditioned to understand this mystery that we've lost the whole mystery of the mystery. And what Paul is talking about when he, when he talks about the mystery is that the church, under the kingship and leadership of Jesus, is a community of people that includes both Jews and Gentiles, and that would have been scandalous in the day. The church is for everybody. Because there's, there's two kinds of people in the world, Jews and Gentiles. Like Gentiles covers a whole multitude of different religions and expressions and all of that sort of thing. But the church that belongs to Jesus is for all people. Every week we say everyone who comes through the doors is welcome. The doors of the church. And the church not as a building, the church not as an event, but the church as the people of God is for all people. And so this is the vision that Paul has in his heart. This is what he longs for the church at Ephesus to become. For this reason. For this reason. Remember, Jesus said, by your love for one another, people should see in the church what they don't see in the world. People who have no right being friends. People have, who have every reason to hate each other and fight each other come together in the church. This is the picture of the church that Paul has in mind, that Jesus had in mind. The way we love each other will show the world, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what language you speak, no matter what your background, no matter what your culture, no matter what your story, no matter what your baggage, no matter what your history, there is a place for everyone in the church that belongs to Jesus. And this is Paul's vision for this reason. And he's kneeling. For this reason, I kneel. Now, again, that might seem a bit obvious, a bit, well, what's the point of that? But kneeling wasn't actually a common posture of prayer for the church. I, I love at Gateway, we often say, let's all stand together and pray. Standing was more of a common posture before prayer. But when you knelt, like that day I knelt in my office in Toowoomba, because <laughs> I was really serious that day, remember? But kneeling is this, is this posture of desperation, Kneeling is this posture of submission. It, it's, it's, a, it's a different, more, more intense posture of prayer that Paul is describing. For this reason, what's in my heart? I am, I'm begging the Father. I'm desperate to see that this, this church in Ephesus, this multicultural, multiracial, chaotic trade port city, 
that the church there would be this picture, this vision that Jesus had in mind and that he's put in my heart. He's desperate to see it happen. And of course, he's kneeling. He's kneeling. You know how we say, one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Paul is leading the way and saying, don't wait for that moment. Kneel now. I kneel now before King Jesus who is building this church. And Paul goes on to drive this idea, this, this theme further because he goes on in verse 15 to say, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. This is another picture of the diversity and the unity. Those two things don't seem to go together well in our culture. If you have diversity, it's hard to then have unity. Not in the church, not in the church that submits to Jesus. This is another picture for every family in heaven on earth derives its name from the creator God. And the full expression of the church is when Jesus unites all families under heaven and earth back together again. And they're loving each other in the way that Jesus loved them and showing the world that we belong to him. I mean, there's so much division in our world and there are many attempts to bring unity. You see it in something like the Manly Sea Eagles jersey. We don't want to be exclusive, we want to be inclusive. And what happens? Grenade thrown into society and there's massive division and people throwing out labels of the other part. That was an attempt to bring people together. And we see it everywhere. Whenever there's an attempt to bring people together, often it creates more division, it creates more animosity, it creates more violence, more aggression. And that, that picture that John Lennon had when he wrote that song, Imagine, is just so far from us. So far from our ability to do it, but not beyond the ability of Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can bring unity when there is diversity. And Paul knows this, and this is what he's praying for. He's praying for this. And here's his prayer. That's who he's praying to. He's praying to that, that God, that Jesus, who can do that, who can form a church like that, who can form a community like that. And here's what he prays. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of of God. That's a prayer. Paul on his knees with this vision of the church being what Jesus has put in his heart that it can be, praying that the love of God would so fill us and overwhelm us. I love quoting this uh, commentator because I think he's got one of the best names in the history of the world. His name is Klein Snodgrass and he wrote this about this passage. Paul, he wants his readers strengthened by God's spirit so that they may know intimately Christ's presence and love. If this happens, all else will fall in place. If this happens, all else will fall in place. This is the structure of Paul's letter, by the way. At the end of this chapter, there were no chapters in the original, but at the end of chapter three, he takes a significant move uh, in, the, in the rest of the chapters. He moves from God's love is incredible. God's love, who you are in Christ. You have been adopted as sons and daughters of the king. You have been enthroned in the kingdom of heaven. This is incredible what has happened. Now, here's how you should live. The order is always super important to Paul. You are loved, so live like you're loved. Never Live a life that makes you lovable 
in one day hope that God will love you. It's always from Paul, here is the incredible transformation that has happened in your hearts. Now live like this. The glorious riches, I love this. And if you think back to the first week, remember that, remember that phrase, every spiritual blessing is yours in Jesus? Remember that? Like that, every spiritual blessing. It's like, if you're in Christ, every spiritual blessing is yours from a God who knows no limits. But if you're outside of Christ, you've got nothing. It's every or none. But in Christ, for those who are in Christ, for those who have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life, those who have been chosen, those who are loved by God, every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. And Paul, again, thinking of that, describes it as glorious riches, glorious riches. From his glorious riches, may you have strength in your inner being. It's a really interesting word in the Greek. I don't know what the Greek word is. I didn't look that up, but I, I looked up the description of it. And this is, this is the heart of where life comes from for you, both where you make decisions about how you're going to live, but also how you filter and respond and react to everything external that's going on. That's the Greek word for your inner being. So where you make, make all your key life choices, big life choices, little life choices, everything from that part of you, that heart, I don't think it's actually here by the way, I'm just, that's where I imagine it is, because you feel it in your chest. But then when all these other things are going out in the world, all the opposition, all the rainbow coloured jerseys, all of the other stuff, the Zarafa spoons and road rage from that stupid guy who was driving that van that day, all of the, how you react to that, you do that in your inner being. And Paul is praying that in that place, May the Holy Spirit strengthen you. May you make all of your decisions in communion with the Spirit. May you react to everything that's going on around you, not from fear, not from a desire to conform with what's going on with the world, but from that place of where the Spirit dwells. And he goes further to say where, you, where, where Christ dwells. By the Spirit, Christ dwells in your inner being. And let everything about your life come from that place. He's praying desperation on his knees that that would be true of the Christians in Ephesus and true for the Christians at Ormo Baptist. Sorry, Gateway Ormo. <laughs> and all of this, the Spirit dwelling in our inner being, Christ dwelling in our hearts. The other phrase he uses is a very, it doesn't work in Australia too well, but rooted and established in love established in love. To have Christ dwell, have the Spirit dwell in our inner being is to have love at the core of who we are. It's all about love. Before this becomes an academic exercise or simply a decision-making framework, okay, I'm going to make my decisions based on this Holy Spirit that is consulting me, that is coaching me, that is mentoring me on the inside. Let me just think, before this is an academic exercise and the same for everything that's going on externally and trying to filter it through that lens... Before it's any of that, it's love. It's this heart motivation of love, like Jesus loves us. Paul is praying that this would happen. And while he's writing about love, he moves into the next part of his prayer. And he actually prays an oxymoron. You guys know what an oxymoron is, right? Like, like bittersweet or, or definite possibility or country music. This is what an oxymoron is, right? They just, don't, they just don't make sense together. 
And so Paul is praying here that we would grasp something that is ungraspable. That's a word I just made up. He's praying that we would know something that is unknowable. He's, uh, he's asking God that God would help us to fathom something that is ultimately unfathomable. And that is the love of God. This thing that, is, that he's praying would be in an inner being. He's saying, I, I want to pray that you would grow in it and that you would know it. But ultimately, it's beyond knowledge. It surpasses knowledge. He, he says, May you have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. It's an oxymoron. How can you know something that you can't know? But what a beautiful, apt, incredibly true description of the love of God. We can never know it and so we can never arrive at the end of it and go, well, that's all the love of God expended for me. I understand it all now. What's next? You can never reach that place. You can grow in it, you can know it more and more and more, but ultimately it surpasses knowledge. You cannot know it. You cannot experience enough of it. How wide is it? Well, the, the, another, another term that Paul uses, uh, that the Bible uses to describe the grace of God, he removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Now you can try this, you can experiment with it. Head east for a while, head east and then turn around and see how far the west is from you and head back towards the west and when you get there, Turn back and see how far the east is. You, you never arrive. It's something you can never do. The ungraspable love of God. Paul is praying that we would know the unknowable. How are we going with that? How are you going, Gateway Ormo? How are you going with growing and experiencing more and more of the love of God in your inner being? In this season of opposition and opportunity with so many voices that opposition telling you to conform, telling you don't live like this, live like this. Is it the love of God that is in your inner being where your decisions about life are made, where you react to the life going on around you? The Holy Spirit rooting and establishing you in love, this love that you can never fully know. Just imagine, imagine if we as a church spent more time now, you may look at this if you're a task-oriented person and think this is unconstructive time. But imagine if, if, this, if this is Paul's prayer for, for us to be the sort of church that Jesus wants us to be, if we just spent more time dwelling on the love of God. If we just spent more time talking to each other about the love of God. Because I'm not sure we do that a whole lot. Sometimes we can get busy with the ministry. But Paul's prayer here is that the love of God would be in that inner being of us individually and corporately. And that from that place, if we can get that right, as my friend Mr. Snodgrass said, if this happens, all else will fall into place. Then we come into this, uh, the fridge magnet verse of all fridge magnet verses. And this is one that we attach to so many prayers. And some of those prayers are maybe a little bit dishonorable, but we love this. This is, this, is a, this is one of those verses that I reckon we could quote without having to look at the scripture. Having said that, I'm going to look at the scripture as I read it. <laughs> now to him 
this same God, this same Jesus, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Don't you want to say amen to that, depending on what's in your mind and in your heart as you pray that? Like, yeah, give me immeasurably more, God. I've got, I've got a fair bit, but I want immeasurably more and attach your prayer to that. But again, if, if, we, if we place this incredible prayer to an incredible God in the context of what Paul is praying, he's picturing a church, unified diversity, no Jew or Gentile, no male or female, no slave or master, no, no, there's no predetermined skin color, there's no, there's no one excluded when they come to Christ. This is the vision that Paul has in his mind and God is able to do it. Look around people, no one else is able to do it. War, division, violence, aggression, cancel culture, all the rubbish that's going on in our world. But God's the one who's able to do immeasurably more. He can grow the church and he can grow a diverse, unified body that says to the world, look, see the love of Jesus expressed in this community by the way we love each other. This to me raises an awkward question. And it raises an awkward question as I stand here with my boss sitting in the front row, <laughs> uh, thinking of the great things that are happening at Redlands campus, the great things that are happening in almost 1.7 million coming up to, to do incredible things. And that, that, you know, we don't want to harp on the 1.7, even though I think I've said it about four times already. But it is unlocking, it's opening new doors. But, but I do have to say that with, with this in mind, what Paul is praying for, and, and the power of God on display like that. I mean, this is revival that he's praying for. And he's, and he's showing what's at the heart of revival is God's people being so overwhelmed with the love of God that then all else falls into place. We're seeing some great things, but we're not seeing revival. And if the issue, and I would be the last person to ever dare say, well, the problem with that is with God. I'm not ever going to say that. The, the issue isn't with God. Well, if the issue isn't with God, who's it with? I think it's with his church. And I think in the West, maybe we are a bit scared by the opposition. Maybe we are a bit intimidated by this pressure to conform and not live out the life that Jesus wants us to live. Rather than filling ourselves with courage, rather than filling ourselves with, to do better and to say, come on, we can do better, church. What if we did what I said before? We just dwelled on the love of God in our inner being. We prayed with Paul and we said, yeah, amen. God, do this. The immeasurably more I want to see is more of the church that Jesus described, that we would show the world that we belong to him by the way that we love each other. You know, I reckon as, as, as Paul thinks about power, the power of God, he thinks about his time in Ephesus. And if you haven't read it, you've got to go and do it. Read Acts 19 and see what was going on in Ephesus when Paul goes in there. He spends just over two years there and the stuff that happens when he goes in and preaches the gospel is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Some of you might know this, but he, like Paul carries a handkerchief. Anyone carry a handkerchief? Yeah, okay, so imagine, imagine you've got a handkerchief and this poor bloke comes and starts preaching the gospel. I don't know whether he dropped the handkerchief or the handkerchief was left behind. Someone grabs that handkerchief and drops it on a dead person or a sick person. As soon as the handkerchief touches them, they're healed. That's the sort of stuff that was going on in Ephesus. That, that's what it says in the Bible. 
we can doubt that, but it's in the Bible. I'm, we're going to believe that. As Paul keeps preaching the gospel, incredible stories of people coming to faith. Remember, Ephesus is this multicultural, multiracial, multi-religious city. Chaos, busyness, the rat race is heavy in Ephesus. There's statues to Artemis and all these other gods all over the place. And this little guy, Paul, walks in and starts preaching the gospel and the power of God just goes, bam. But you know, with all that incredible stuff going on, with all that opportunity, some pretty fierce opposition comes as well. These guys who, uh, their, their trade was making false gods, like making idols out of wood and stone and everything. They get, start getting cranky because their whole industry is decimated and undermined because people stop, stop worshipping these gods and stop buying them. They get pretty cranky and they start a riot. They see after, the reason they start a riot is they see all this stuff that they've been making and selling or burning in a big fire, this massive bonfire, all the Christ, new Christians are coming and burning all their old gods. These guys get a bit fearful. They start a riot and there's aggression, and there's violence, and people are thrown in prison, and it's horrible. That's the opposition that comes. Despite the fact that the power of God in Ephesus has come heavily, the opposition has come. Does that sound familiar? We are in a season of opposition and opportunity but I reckon as Paul is writing this, the, the God who's able to do immeasurably more, he's remembering what happened in Ephesus and I reckon he's still a bit stunned by it all, however many years later as he's chained to a Roman uh, soldier in, under house arrest in Rome when he's writing this letter, he's still thinking about what happened in Ephesus and going, Man, I can't believe that, can't believe the power of God but he's also knowing that the power of God is, is linked so intimately with his love and this is what Sam forgot when those Zarephus spoons were, I wanted the power of God, but where was the love in my inner being for this bloke who had lost all his spoons? Paul's remembering opportunity, opposition, power of God, but the love of God being at the root of the power of God that he witnessed. The other thing that's implied in all these prayers is Paul is praying this, but the implication is not what Paul knows in, as he's praying this prayer for the Christians at Ephesus is that none of this is just automatic. None of this is just a group of people sitting like this, bored, thinking, when's he going to finish? And suddenly, the power of God comes. And we just have no choice in it. It's just an automatic reaction because the power of God's suddenly here. Now, implied in this prayer is that we open ourselves up to it. That we make ourselves available. We say, God, yes, more of your love, more of your power in my life. It's not passive on our part and it's not automatic on God's part. There's not, there's not going to be a magic day when the stars of God align and he just suddenly pours out his power on Gateway Ormo. I think, I think there's a bit of a partnership deal that goes on here. When he sees people desperate, when he sees people like Paul kneeling, asking God, yes, pour out your love into our hearts. Let let. let let the Holy Spirit dwell in my inner being. Let every decision I make and how I react to the world that's going on, let, let you sit in, by your grace and by your love, let that sit in my inner being. Let that sit in our inner being as a church, that we would be the people of God that Jesus envisioned Paul that we would be. I think there's a, there's a truth in a really simple statement that, that helps us to understand what, Again, my friend Mr. Snodgrass was saying that when we get the love of God, all else 
fits into place. And it's this simple phrase, loved people love people. When we are so filled and consumed with the love of God, we can't help but love each other and we can't help but love other people, all people, under their names that come under the name of God, every family on earth. So Paul Paul prays for this love that we might be a community that transcends barriers. I'm not sure there are a whole heap of barriers in the room right now between us loving each other, but there certainly are when we walk out those doors. But when the love of God is so in us, so consuming us, and so in that that place of our inner being, we outwork, we live lives of love. Paul will go on to unpack that over the next three weeks of the series. We'll look more at that. But not before we know the love of God in our inner beings. I think this is the same love that Jesus heard from heaven when he heard his father say, you are my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. You know, Jesus needed to hear that. Jesus needed to hear that the father loved him before he'd done anything. I mean, he'd lived for about 30 years already, he'd done stuff, but he was about to start his public ministry. But God declared his love for him before he'd done that, not after. He didn't say after, well, now I love you. Sometimes we get a bit confused by that. We, we think we need to make ourselves lovable before God will love us. Now, that's not true. God would look at each of you and say, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. That's true over your life right now. Whatever you've come from in the last week, whatever you're going to this week, that's how the Father looks at you when you are in Christ. You are mine, whom I love. And with you, I'm well pleased. So love because you are loved. How do we do that practically? Jesus is the model. Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. I love you. I love you. Now live like you're loved. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, Zacchaeus, whatever you want to pronounce his name, the transformation that happened in his life as a result of encountering the love of Jesus. I pay back everything I've taken four times over, which I don't know how you do the maths on that. But this is what happens when people encounter the love of Jesus as he loves them. Can I suggest two really simple actions as I get towards the end here? Two simple things that you can start doing as as you respond to God filling you and establishing the love of Christ in your inner being. The first thing is this, start with loving each other. Start with loving each other. God is our Father, and so as His children, He loves it if we love each other. It's a delight in my heart in the rare moments where our four kids love each other and get along well. It's the same with our Heavenly Father when He sees His kids playing nicely together. Not nicely, lovingly. So I want to say, if you're not serving someone, because love and service go together, saying I love you but then walking out the door is not very convincing. But the love of Christ is shown in his washing his disciples' feet in serving them in that way. So if you're not serving in some way at Gateway Ormo, start doing it. There, There are plenty of roles that need filling. There are plenty of practical things that you can do to express the love that Jesus wants you to show in loving one another. Love is action, love is serving. 
And there's, there's obviously a scale of what sacrificial love looks like, and I'm talking about the stuff that's probably down this end, like giving up an hour of your week to serve your brothers and sisters here at Gateway Ormo. But do something. Join the welcome team. Join the setup team. Join the music. Jo- join some kind of team and start serving one another. Let that be a step towards, okay, I want to love my brothers and sisters here like Jesus loves me and loves them so that we start to become, that we're already, you already are this, by the way, but as you become more and more the church that Jesus wants you to be, that church that by your love for each other shows the people out there that you belong to him by the way you love and serve one another. So start by loving each other. Join a, t- join a team and start serving. The second thing is practice the rhythms of grace. Practice the rhythms of grace. What I've stolen there is a phrase that you'll see coming up in the series after this. I hope I'm not giving too much away here. Uh, but there's a series we're going to be looking at where we, where we sort of dive into some of the things. And I don't like this description, but it's one that you'll be familiar with, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. But can I couch them in this way? Spiritual disciplines are great things to do to help embed and establish the love of Christ, the love of God by the Holy Spirit in your inner being. That's the end game for spiritual disciplines, that more of that would happen as we find solitude, as we read our Bibles, as we pray both on our own and together, as we find community, as we come to to gather on Sunday mornings and worship together, all of those spiritual disciplines, they're practicing the rhythms of grace and embedding in us in our inner being, the love of God. To know you are loved, it means taking intentional time to remember you are loved. Here's what's going on. Wherever you, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, you are being storied. You're being told a story about who you are and what you should become. And again, as we live in the world and as we watch the news and as we go to the shops and as we go to school and all of the things that are going on, the world is shouting at us, even though sometimes it's a bit hard to hear it. This is who you should be. This is who you should be. Don't be that, be this. In moments like we have right now, this, this precious time we have together, which is an hour and 20 minutes, an hour and 20 minutes out of 168 hours in a week to come and for that moment, to be told this is your story this is who you are child of God in your inner being be strengthened by the love of God that is in Jesus an hour and a half out of 168 is not enough we need to be reminded constantly because the voice of the world is very loud we need to be reminded constantly of the story that we are a part of Not the story of the world, but the story of the kingdom of God. The story that has no ending. There is no the end on this story. And you need to take intention, I need to take intentional time to story myself. Whether that be in a setting like this, or whether it be at home on my own, whether it be going and joining a life group and, and spending that time together, reminding each other, whether it be serving on a team or whatever it is. Where's that time for you? Where are you being intentional to remember who you are and to have this prayer that Paul prayed be a reality for you? So start 
with loving each other, start with serving each other and then practice the rhythms of grace. Not because it earns you brownie points with God, but because in those places, whether it be on your own or with other people, you are growing in the knowledge of the love of God that you can never actually reach the end of because it surpasses knowledge. So this is about right now in this moment for, for, for Gateway Ormo and for us as a, as a church to assess our openness, to self-assess our willingness, our attention towards knowing and receiving God's love, being open to the spirit that is already working. Paul says he's already working in us and I have to believe and do believe that he's working right now, maybe just doing that knock on the door. How open are you? How willing are you? How attentive are you? How open are we? How willing are we? How attentive are we to receiving what Paul is praying for in these verses? I just reckon a really good way for us to respond this morning, and this might not be for everyone, but for those who it's for, a really appropriate posture for those who want to say, yes, I'm open. Yes, I'm willing. Yes, I'm attentive. Is to do like Paul did and kneel. And I got a bit anxious before when I walked in and saw the floor that you guys meet on because we've got nice carpet at Redlands. So people very happily kneel. This is a lot more uncomfortable. It's cold. It's hard. But we think of Paul who was kneeling in a, under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier. When he knelt, I'm sure the floor was a lot rougher than this. I just think it's a really appropriate posture for us to take right now to express our openness, our willingness, our attentiveness to the love of God that is stirring in this place right now. So if you want to pray this prayer, what I would love to do is pray this prayer over us, over Gateway Ormo, to pray this prayer for us. But I think an appropriate posture for us to take is to kneel. So if you're able and you're willing, let's kneel together. read this prayer from the New Testament for Everyone translation. Because of this, I am kneeling down before the Father, the one who gives the name of family to every family that there is in heaven and on earth. My prayer is this, that he will lay out all the riches of his glory to give you strength and power through his spirit in your inner being that the King may make His home in your hearts through faith, that love may be your root, your firm foundation, and that you may be strong enough with all of God's holy ones to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the King's love, though actually it's so deep that nobody can really know it. So may God fill you, Gateway Ormo, with all His fullness and to the one who is capable of doing far, far more than we could ask or imagine. Granted the power which is working in us, to him be glory in the church and in King Jesus to all generations and to the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. And as God answers that prayer, man, we live in this season of opposition and opportunity. 
And this is such a great song that we're about to sing, another prayer to our God who is able to do immeasurably more than we could dare ask or imagine. Let's stand to our feet and uh, let's continue to pray. Let's continue to commit ourselves. Focus on the opportunity. Don't be fearful of the opposition as the love of Christ dwells in our hearts. Let's, uh, Let's sing together. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we would love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au. 